Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hello, it's Monday, February 13th, 2023. This is the Defender Bible Study Podcast. This is Chris Johnson. I serve as the Vice President of Church Partnerships and Government Affairs at Lifeline and excited to continue our study as we look at C.S. Lewis' classic book, Mere Christianity. Well, this morning we are going to continue our look at Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, we are in book number two, the, the middle part of this uh, book of essays, really radio addresses that were turned into essays that then became a book. Uh, the title of book number two is What Christians Believe. And, and really in this book, Lewis is showing us uh, why and how Christianity really stands high above all other religions and other faith expressions. And so today we're going to be looking at the thoughts that, that he addressed in chapters three, four, and five of book two. So last week we looked at chapters one and two, which is the first part of book number two. And then today we're going to look at the second half of book number two. So in chapter one, Dr. Rick shared with us last week, in chapter one, Lewis addresses the different belief systems uh, and how really they, they fall short, they all fail. They don't stand up to the realities and the truth, the test, the proof of Christianity. Uh, then we, we also saw in chapter two that he began to discuss the struggle between good and evil and where good comes from and evil comes from. Uh, he ultimately concluded that good and evil do not act in isolation, uh, but that God created that which is good, but then sin has marred his goodness in that creation. So today we're going to continue kind of that, that thought process down as we look then uh, at chapter number three. If God created good things, then how do we get evil? Where does evil come from? And so Lewis, in his conversation around this struggle and this understanding of, of good and evil and the realities of both, stresses the, the, the understanding that we need to have a free will and talks about this idea of, of, of God being sovereign, yes, but then creating man and creating his creation, uh, really even before man, creating the angels uh, with this sense of free will, at least at the beginning when he first created the angels. Um, but he gave this opportunity for them to choose to follow him or to deny him, this free will that was given. And again, we, we wrestle with, even now, even today, we wrestle with the idea of God's sovereignty and being in competition with free will and how do we weigh those things out. And so he kind of delves in a little bit into that. Uh, when, when One time I remember I've heard the quote that when Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile the election of God and sovereignty of God with the free will of man? And Spurgeon's response to that was, good friends don't need reconciliation. The reality is the word of God teaches that there are aspects of both at work and at play. God could have made his creation without choice. He could have made his creation to where that uh, there was no choice and they had to, to follow him just by nature of the way that they were created. But Lewis proposes that the greater the ability to choose what is wrong, the greater ability to choose what is right. And so as, as the choices are being made, we, God, wants, God created us in a way where he wanted us to choose to follow him, to choose to walk with him and to trust him. Of course, we have clearly seen from, from history, history tells us, and even our own experiences often tell us that when there is this idea of self and choice, that there is the possibility, and, and I would dare say 
especially now that we're in, in a sin-cursed world, there is the likelihood of that self choosing to put itself first, to put itself at the center of everything and ultimately wanting to make itself God. And so when we, when we look back, we see that this is exactly what happened with Satan, right? Satan was a created angel, a created being that was created to worship God, but yet he made the choice at some point, and we don't, again, don't know all the details of how this works, and we don't see angels making choices now. Their choices are set now. But at some point, there was the opportunity where Satan chose to, uh, to pull away. We see in Isaiah chapter 14, we're told about that, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, it says, how, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So from, from this time here that we, we hear this story, ultimately, Satan said, I want to be like God. I want to make myself like the most high. I think that I could do a better job. I think I want to, want to be equal. Of course, we know that, that that which strives to be equal to God ultimately wants to replace God and make himself God. And that's the desire of Satan even to this day. And not only was that his desire, but from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, into, into God's creation here on earth, we see that that's exactly his tactic that he brought to Eve as well. That's exactly the temptation that he brought before uh, Eve and then, and then Adam also in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, here it is, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation that Satan brought to, to cause uh, or to lead Eve into this sin uh, was, was this temptation to be like God. And this temptation continues over and over and over. This continues even to this day to be the struggle. We, we want to take the, we know the teachings of God's word. We know the things that, that God has told us. And we want to, in our own self, in our own pride, in our own flesh, we want to say, I know that's what you think, God. I know that's what you say, God. But I think I know better for me. I think I know better for my life. Or I think I know better for my situation. We're seeing this rampant throughout our society today. People that even, even people that claim to know the Lord that will say, I know God's word says this, but in this situation, in my context, it's a little bit different. And ultimately what we are striving to do in our flesh is we're trying to set ourselves up as God. We are trying to say that, that we know better, that we, that we can figure things out better than God. And this has been the, the lie from the very beginning, and it continues to be the lie even today. And the truth is that God created his creation to rely on him. God did not create us with the desire and the expectation that we become him, become great as him, and take his place. That's not what God did. God wants to conform us to his image, absolutely, but he didn't create us. He created us with a need for him. We cannot be all that God created us to be without him drawing us to himself, without him saving us by his grace, and then without him empowering us to live the life that he has called us to live. 
we've got to remember that he is the potter and we are the clay. Uh, both Isaiah and Jeremiah both talk about this, this relationship of, of God being the potter and his people being the clay. And so the, the, the potter, the one that shapes and molds the clay is the one that gets to decide the use of the clay, that gets to decide the look of the clay, that gets to decide the function of the clay. The clay doesn't say to the potter, this is who I want to be or this is what I want to be. The potter is the one that is in control. And because God is creator, because God is the one who created us, God is the one who gives us life. God is the one who continues to give life. No life comes into this world without God having a purpose and a design for that life. So because God is creator, God is the one that gets to say what is right and what is wrong. God has the privilege and the responsibility as well to rule over his creation. So we do not have the right as creations of God. We do not have the right to refute or to rule over our creator. Yet we see over and over again, men continue to strive to work hard. They strive to, to build their own kingdoms. They strive to, to make their own best lives. And, and ultimately, they strive to become their own gods. And we think that we can do this apart from our creator. They believe this lie of Satan. They believe this lie that, uh, that, that you, can, you can do things on your own. And, and the reality is, in this world, because of Satan being the ruler of this world and the, the authority that the Lord has allowed him to have in this place, there, there are things that, that man can do in their flesh. There are things that we can accomplish in our flesh. And if we set out, we can build some type of kingdom for ourselves. But what we realize is what we find over and over again, that anything that we build for ourselves will never be sustained. It's never enough to, to, to sustain. It's never enough. It'll never be sufficient to meet man's ultimate greatest need. Our ultimate greatest need is, is for eternity, not just for this world. So anything that we build and we accumulate in this world will never be enough to meet the need that we have because we are separated from our righteous, holy God. And that's where the need really truly is. So God sees this great need that we have. God sees that we can't get to him on our own and we can't fix this need by working hard or by building our own kingdoms. We can't get to him. So what's his response? His response is Galatians chapter four, verses four and five. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God knew our propensity to, to, to choose our own way and our propensity and, and the effects of sin in our life that, that would cause us to, to not want to accept Christ and not want to accept God's way, to, to try to set up our own kingdom, our own way. And so God said to, to resolve this, I'm going to provide for your salvation. I'm going to invite you into the opportunity to become my sons, to have the, the rights that go along with sonship. And at just the right time, in just the right way, and in just the right moment, God provided the remedy. God sent forth his son in the right time to redeem those, those of us who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Lewis talks about this fact that, that Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus comes onto the scene, and now for the first time, there's this individual that, uh, that, that is claiming to be God, but claiming to be God with authority. Uh, he, he, he's claiming to have always existed. He's claiming to have the power to forgive sins. And now a new decision must be made. Now a decision must be made regarding this one who has come who is making these claims. 
Now the decision has to be made. There's now a pivotal point where someone is saying, hey, I have stepped into the scene. I am here to provide what is needed. And so now the decision has to be made. Is this one who says that he is the way, is he, is he truly the way? Is he worthy of my trust? Is he, can he really meet this need and provide uh, what is necessary? Or am I going to continue in my own way and continuing to do it the way that, we, that I've always wanted to do it and way, the way that I think I can do it? Lewis then begins to talk about this idea of how Jesus must be accepted at value of what he sa- who he said he was, who he said he is. In chapter 3, this, this quote I believe is worth reading. It, that he, he really is concluding chapter 3 uh, with, this, with this paragraph. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, love C.S. Lewis humor there, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to be. So Lewis, he leaves it with this thought. And remember, when these, uh, these essays are taken from radio addresses. So I can just imagine him concluding that radio segment. He's talked about good and evil and the strife between and the fact that man tries to set himself up as God. But in the right time, God sent forth Jesus. And Jesus now claims to be God and claims to be the Savior and claims to be the one who can forgive sins. And he leaves us with this idea, what will you do with Jesus? Are you going to trust that he is who he said he is and you're going to place your faith in him? Are you going to continue to deny him and think that you can somehow fix things and somehow get to God in your own power and your own strength? And so he leaves, the radio broadcast ends with he did not intend to be, you must make the choice. He then moves to chapter number four and listen to how he starts the next program, the next time, the next time that his, his message airs. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. I love that last sentence. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. Because mankind had rejected God, we became the enemies of God. And God said, I will come and I will join, although you all are against me, I will come and I will join you in flesh in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. And I will provide what is necessary for you to become the sons of God. In chapter number four here, Lewis really is focusing on Jesus Christ. He's focusing on the the death, the resurrection of Christ, and and, and which we ultimately know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's focusing on the fact that, that the gospel is at the center of Christianity. Again, he's trying to help us understand what separates Christianity from other religions, from other thoughts, other expressions of faith. What makes Christianity real? 
And at the center of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why as a ministry, that's why as Christ followers, our focus is on the gospel. It's, it's the gospel that changes lives. It's the gospel that sets us apart from all other beliefs. We believe that God put on flesh in the person of Jesus and that that Jesus came to this earth, lived a sinless life of perfection, went to a cross, died on that cross, was buried in a grave, and then came out alive and then ascended back to the Father. That is the crux of what is different about every, every other religion, every other thought. We have a Savior. God put on flesh, came, died for us, rose again, and now lives to make intercession for us. And so Lewis has shown that, that is the, that's, the, that's the center of it all. This is the only way that mankind can be made right with God. He talks a little bit about this idea of what, what are some other things, what are some other options that, that God may have had. And, and he says there that a just God can't just let people off the hook because they do some good. We talk about this striving to do good and do better. And, he, and God can't just ignore sin. He can't just ignore that which broke the relationship. There has to, he can't just let people off the hook because he wants to be kind or he wants to be gracious. His justice requires that sin has a price that has to be paid. Uh, Lewis went on to, to talk about the, the fact that God can't just ignore the bad. And, and Lewis expressed that, that at first, before he became a Christian, he just kind of thought that the kind of the way that it worked was that God wanted to punish the rebels, those who rebelled against him, that God wanted to punish these rebels with death, but that Jesus somehow kind of raised his hand and, 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 and kind of like, I'll be tribute, right? I'll kind of, I'll die. I'll be punished instead. And so because Jesus, because Jesus volunteered to be punished, God just let everybody else off the hook. And, and the reality, that, that thought's not sufficient for what was really needed and not really what took place. The reality is sin demands a price. The wages of sin is death. Sin has a price that must be paid. Sin demands a price. And that price could only be paid by someone who did not have the same debt that you and I have. It could only be paid by someone who didn't have that same debt and someone who had the resources and the ability to pay that price. Our debt could only be paid by someone who didn't owe the same debt and who had the ability and the resource to pay it. And the only person that could do that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one that could take this sin debt and pay this debt because he didn't know the debt. He had no sin within him. That's why it's important that he was fully man, but also fully God at the same time. There, he was sinless in his, and there was no even, there was no sin within him. And so because he had no sin debt, he was able to pay the price for the sin debt of all the rest of us. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. If Jesus had had sin, he couldn't have paid the price for us because he would have had to pay his own debt. So he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So by his being the perfect man, Jesus was able to be our atonement and was able to pay the debt that our sin demanded. So in Christ, our debt, our sin debt was paid in full. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to pay the price for our sin. And when he, when he hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, to test to tell us die, that, that, that it is finished. He had done, he had accomplished all that was necessary to pay the debt for our sin, to pay the price for our sin. Our sin debt has now been paid because of Jesus. And so now with that understanding and with that realization, now we, mankind, we must recognize that, he, that, that, that we are not God. 
that we cannot pull ourselves out of the hole. That's how, how, how Lewis explained it, that we're, we're in a hole and we're dependent on someone to pull us out of that hole. We can't do it in and of ourselves. So we must repent. We must recognize that, that we are rebels against God. We must lay down ourselves, lay down our arms in full surrender and allow Christ to rescue us. We cannot do this on our own. We are dependent upon God to move and to do this for us. We are dependent uh, uh, upon God taking us out of that pit, out of that hole, rescuing us, changing us into something new. Not just making us a better version of our old self, not just kind of cleaning us up a little bit, knocking off the dirt dirt and, and fixing us a little bit, but we are dependent upon Christ rescuing us, pulling us out of that hole and making us a new creation in him. I'm so thankful that he does that. To all those who will call on him, he, he takes and makes us something brand new. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not in his own strength, not in his own flesh, not if anyone does good or works hard, if anyone is in Christ and has surrendered to Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He then moves into chapter number five and Lewis now in, in the last chapter of this book, he begins to talk about uh, really just the, the ramifications of this new life in Christ. Once we have seen that, that we are not God, that we cannot become God, that we cannot take over the throne of, of our life or the throne of this world, that, that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the one who has provided for our atonement, who has paid our sin debt, and we must place our faith and repent of ourselves and turn from trusting ourselves as God and trust him as God. What does it look like in our life? Lewis says, in Christ, a new kind of man appeared. And the new kind of life which began in his is to be put into us. The new kind of life which began in his is to be put into us. Just as we cannot save ourselves, we cannot live this new life to which we have been called on our own. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. But Christ is there. He draws us to himself and he accomplishes his work in us. Even the Christian life now is one of surrender to allowing him to, to control us and to guide us. We're told to be filled with the spirit, to be controlled by the spirit of God so that it is God working in us through the person of Christ, through the working of the Holy Spirit. And in this God working in us, he will complete the job that he started. He will see this through all the way to eternity. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know now that we are not doing good works to earn God's love. There's not enough good that we could do to earn God's love. We are not doing good works to earn God's love, but God's love will compel us to do good works. When God comes, when Christ takes over, when Jesus takes hold of our life, it looks different. Our walk looks different. Our talk looks different. The way that we respond looks different. Lewis says, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but God will make us good because he loves us. Listen to that again. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but God will make us good because he loves us. Any good that we accomplish, anything that we, uh, that we do that has lasting value is because God loves us enough to be at work in our lives and he loves us enough to use us for, for building his kingdom, to use us for his honor and for his glory. What a privilege, what a joy it is to recognize that God loves you, God loves me, God loves us enough that he would choose to use us 
to accomplish his purpose, to accomplish his will here in this world and to bring others and point others to himself. He uses the, the illustration, Lewis does, of a, of a greenhouse. And he says that, that a greenhouse doesn't attract the sun, the shining sun, because that greenhouse is, is, greenhouse is warm and bright. But he said in, in return, that greenhouse is warm and bright because the sun sees fit to shine upon it. And the same is true in our life. We don't, we don't get to God by being good and doing good things, but we do good things because God is shining on us. God is at work in us. And so this reality of, of surrendering and trusting God then empowers us to do good deeds, to do good works, to do what God has called us to do. And God now works through his people. We are called to be his ambassadors, to spread his good news, the gospel. Uh, uh, Lewis talks a little bit about the idea that some say, well, what about those who've never heard Christ or, or, or know Christ? And he says, hey, don't get bogged down by figuring out God's sovereignty and God's way of, of salvation. God's going to take care of those things. But, but if that's our heart and that's our understanding, well, what about those who've never heard Christ? The response to that shouldn't be, well, then I need to reject Christ because I'm, I'm not better than them. The response to me should be, I'm going to run to Christ and I'm going to allow Christ to empower me to take the name of Christ to those others, to, to help spread the gospel, to now be ambassadors that take, as, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, this, this ministry of reconciliation, this message of reconciliation, to now take it to the hurting, to take it to the broken, to take it to those who have not heard Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And what is God's appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The truth is we know that one day Christ is going to return. And at that time when he returns, everyone, everyone on earth will yield to him and recognize him as God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a time when even the most wicked in this world will recognize that Jesus is God, that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that, that he is the creator and the sustainer, and that, that he is the one uh, that, that, it, that is in charge and is in control. And we will bow our knee before Jesus as our Savior. One day, everyone's going to recognize that. And Lewis says, if we're going to come to a point where in the end, we know we're going to recognize that, but it's going to be too late for us to make that choice. Why not choose now? Why not recognize now that Jesus is the Savior, right? Why not recognize now that Jesus has provided for our atonement? How much better is it to make that choice now? And so as we reflect on these things and think on these things today and this whole process of salvation, it begs the question, first and foremost, do we make, we must make sure that, that we're in right relationship with God? We must make sure that there's been a time that we have surrendered our hearts and our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I don't take that for granted. There's a lot of people that, that we go through the motions and we do the Christian thing without really experiencing the true gift of salvation. And so I think when we hear these kind of things, it's important that we, that we, that we truly look at our own hearts, look at our own lives. Are we just trying to do the Christian life in our own power, in our own flesh? Are we just kind of going through the motions or, or doing it because it just seems like the, 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 the right thing to do at the time? Or has there ever been a time that each one of us has truly surrendered ourselves? Have we bowed our knee to Jesus Christ as our Savior? Have we trusted him as our, as our Lord and Savior? 
it's important that we know that we are secure in that, that we know that we have done that. And if we have, it then begs that we then turn our attention to others outside of the faith, that we then not only uh, uh, trust God as our Savior, but we allow him to empower us and to work in us and pray that we would be a witness for him in the world around us. May we as his followers strive to, to do those good things, to allow him to work and accomplish his good works through us so that we might be his light to the world around us. May we stand firm on the gospel. May we not move away from it. May we not shy away from it. May we stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be willing to be his ambassadors in this world. What a joy it is that we get to be that, that we get to, to be used of him. And in even in our work context here, we get to, to be ambassadors of Christ. May we be faithful to the task and may we shine brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, we are praying for our Families Count ministry, and we invite you to join with us as we lift up this vital ministry to vulnerable parents and vulnerable families. Dearly, Father God, we love you and thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for providing for us the, the way to have access to our Heavenly Father, the way to have access to salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, who now continues to make intercession for us. And Lord, as we come together in prayer, we want to lift up specifically the ministry of Families Count, where I thank you so much for uh, the team here at Lifeline God, that you laid this ministry on their heart and gave them the wisdom to know how to implement this ministry. And now, Lord, you have called churches all over the country, Lord, to uh, host these these classes where they're welcoming in, inviting in vulnerable families and broken families that are seeking to be restored and made whole again. And Lord, we are seeing these things happen in the, by the power of the gospel. We're so grateful, Lord, so thankful for our church partners, so thankful for our training team and thankful for, uh, Lord, all those that, that are a part of this process. And God, we pray that you would continue to, to give direction and continue to give guidance. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to give favor with uh, Child Protective Services in the different areas where these churches are hosting families count classes. We pray that you would continue to speak to the hearts of your people and help churches recognize the need for this type of ministry and, uh, Lord, help them to overcome their fears or lack of resources, Lord, and to be able to engage uh, in the ministry to, to broken families. God, we pray that uh, you would just continue to strengthen our, our team, Lord, as they travel and host trainings and reach out to new churches and new partners. And uh, we pray you continue to provide the funding necessary to do this type of ministry as well. And God, we know that this is your ministry. We know that this is near your heart. Uh, you have a heart for the broken. You, Lord, had desire to see uh, families restored and people to be reconciled to you uh, through Christ. And so, God, we pray that you would just bless this ministry abundantly. Uh, we pray, God, that you just would uh, raise up churches that would that would love well, that would care well. We pray that you'd send the right people to the different families count classes that are being offered around the country and even internationally, God, as, as, as other places engage in this ministry as well. Uh, Lord, we, we again, we just completely surrender this ministry to you and we trust that you will continue to bless it and, and work in it in, in just incredible ways as you have been so faithful to do in the past. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Lifeline. We pray your continued blessings on it. Give us wisdom to know how best to equip and engage your church, Lord, uh, in manifesting the gospel of the vulnerable. May we be faithful to the mission to which we've been called. We'll give you praise and glory for all things that you will do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. 
For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Music